Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Our world is just so much more polluted with toxins pesticides things in the air the what we put on our food that we eat like the like the pesticides it'll make it so the plants are less nutritious so even though you're eating that clean green diet it's gonna have way less nutrients than it did five ten years ago this is good humans podcast with me cooper chapman chatting to the world's best about the inspiring stories that got them to where they are today Hello, all of you good humans out there. Welcome back to Good Humans Podcast. Today is a guest episode and I'm stoked you are here. If you're new here, very warm welcome. Hopefully you enjoy today's episode. If you do enjoy it, make sure you hit that subscribe and follow button and go back and check out some of our previous guests. There's been some incredible humans involved in this podcast. I'm so excited about the guests we have. We do also have the 1% Good Podcast, which is where I speak about some things that I find interesting, some great topics, and bring some light to the amazing thing that is the 1% Good Club Instagram accountability groups. Over 800 members. Make sure you check that out. And also, 28 and Sober came out for the first time this week, my one-year journey into being sober. I've done 10 years of drinking, and I thought, you know what? Let's do one year off and document it and hopefully inspire some people out there to come along for the journey. So make sure you check them out. If you are coming back and you're a regular listener, a big thank you. I love, love, love you all. It's so awesome to see this community continue to grow. You're sharing it around with your friends. You're creating this incredible movement of good humans trying to better their lives. So big thank you to everyone getting involved. Please hit that five star on Spotify and Apple Podcast if you haven't already. Big thank you for yeah helping us grow this podcast. On to today's episode, we have Dr. Tyler Pansner, PhD in molecular and cellular pharmacology. Tyler is a self-motivated scientist and scholar driven to enhance the lives of those around him through the education of biological principles and human physiology. He has an innate fascination of how substances, both endogenous and exogenous, natural and synthetic, affect the body. And also his self-teachings have supplemented his education to develop extensive knowledge on a wide array of disease states and biological topics. He's always eager to learn new concepts. This conversation really fascinated me. We went so deep into some great topics, some things about uh, allergies really interested me things that I hadn't heard before or really thought about and that's about inflammation from different substances we put in our body and allergies that we might not know we have so make sure you listen out for that as we go through this conversation and also right at the end of this conversation we chatted a lot about the idea of what magic mushrooms and all different drugs can do for us in yeah positive ways so I was quite fascinated by this and hopefully you are as well Welcome to Good Humans Podcast, Dr. Tyler Pansner. How you going, mate? Doing well. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. So, I mean, where are you in the world right now? So I'm in Stanford, Connecticut, USA. 
So other side of the world. What time is it by you? It's just just got done with work 5.15 by me. What time is it by you? Yeah, yeah it's 7 a.m. here. So I'm up bright and early on the Zoom and ready to, yeah, be inspired and learn by your story because it's been, yeah, you, you reached out to me last week after I had um, Nicole Vignola on the podcast. And obviously your topics that you're going to talk about today come under that science and medicine realm. And I'm really excited because last week we'll, Nicole's episode was super informative for me and really educated me on so many topics that I'm very curious about. And yeah, when you reached out, I was like, I got to have Tyler on. This is going to be awesome. So maybe tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. What, who is Tyler Panza? Yeah. So I'm a 29 year old uh, PhD graduate. I actually, I think tomorrow will be exactly one year to the day that I defended my PhD thesis. Um, in cellular and molecular pharmacology. So the discipline of study of how drugs and substances, and I personally tack on vitamins, minerals, basically how anything in our external environment, any molecules affects human physiology or just animal physiology in general. Um, I, my training was initially in uh, neuroscience and breast cancer. So basically how to actually, I was the guy doing the pipetting um, learning how to develop new drugs, um, utilizing cell culture, mouse models, uh, rat models of disease. Um, but it was towards the end of my PhD, I really got super passionate about genetics and personalized medicine. So how can you enhance the quality of your life based on your personal genetics, your lifestyle, and really just decided to take a career path down that route. I personally felt that I could help far more people in the world by educating them how to understand their own body better rather than just being the guy in the lab, injecting the mice with different things to make a new chemotherapy drug. That's super important, absolutely. Um, but for me, I'm a real big extrovert. I love talking to people. I love educating people. So I decided to go that personalized medicine route that I think is really going to revolutionize healthcare in the next three, five, 10 years. Yeah. I'm so excited to go into these topics with you because you're obviously so passionate about it. You can see in your face and in your voice when you talk mm -hmm. about it, how excited you get. So when you say personalized medicine, do you, are you coming at it from almost, I mean, that wouldn't just be performance obviously, but is that personalizing say vitamins, minerals, what we're putting in our body for performance I guess performance, but then also just overall health. Yeah. Yeah. So where personalized medicine, at least in the U S right now, where it's at, um, I took a position as a data analyst for a personalized genomics company. Now that's what I do for my main, uh, occupation right now. And where the space is at now for personalized medicine, at least in the U S is it's more so focused on personalizing your treatments, mainly for different types of cancers. So okay. they can sequence your DNA. And if you get cancer, those cells, their DNA gets mutated. So it's not the same exact type of genetics as you. That's why the tumors grow so big and can eventually metastasize because they acquire more and more genetic mutations. So it's more so looking at the genetics of you and how you metabolize different types of drugs and then looking at the genetics of your tumor cells, and you could figure out, um, oh, the tumor has X mutation, and that means they won't do well on this drug, but they'll do very, very well on that drug. So kind of custom tuning your treatment for your cancer based on the genetics. Um, in addition, it focuses on 
Um, let's say you and your significant other are thinking about starting a family. They can sequence you and your significant other and basically check to see if there's any probability of a deleterious or pathogenic, um, basically a really bad or severe genetic disorder. Um, and if that's the case, there's steps you could take. For example, let's say they do the math, they do the genetics and say you have a 25% chance of your child having a huge chromosome deletion, which would be very catastrophic. They can then get several different eggs and several different sperm for in vitro fertilization. And they could basically handpick which egg and sperm are put together and then they'll implant it to basically ensure that that offspring won't have that ailment or disease. In addition, it's focused on, they can actually get amniotic fluid while a woman's pregnant and sequence the baby or the fetus, the unborn child to see very early on if there are. So you could do ahead of time, before conception or during. That's where the space is mainly at in the US now, but where I'm really interested and where I hope it goes eventually is like you mentioned, personalizing your own vitamin regime to make sure that you function your best at all times. Um, you can eat a perfectly balanced, super healthy, full of green diet, exercise, get sunlight. You could do all the things that most of these different health and wellness people tell you to do, that you could still be horribly deficient in certain nutrients because your genetic mutations hardwire you to have very low or sometimes very high levels of different things. And too much of a good thing can also be a bad thing. So I hope down the road, I want to be part of that change where you're shifting just from the reactive therapies, which is very important. We need to, mm. even if everyone ate perfectly, people still get cancer. So we still need those therapies, but I would like to see the focus shift or take some attention to helping keep people healthy along their entire life to prevent the formation of these diseases and also increase their quality of life. So big yeah. umbrella term with personalized medicine. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting that it yeah, has come from this care place, but I love the way that you touched on that. So often, yeah, just people can eat the perfect diet and just for your average person can be doing everything right. But based on their genetics, it cannot be the right solution. It just shows how different we all are and how important it is to have a good understanding of yourself rather than just the blanket. Oh, this is healthy. This is not healthy. It's like, it's not as black and white as it generally is made out to be. Definitely. I mean, I can give you a quick example. Um, I was dealing with some, I'm very prone to inflammation. So it's one of those things that I have a lot of allergies. And part of the reason why I got so good and knowledgeable at what I do is because I was trying to fix myself. So it's like you go down the rabbit hole trying to make myself feel better. I figure out what's wrong and what works. I get all that knowledge and practical experience and can apply that to others. But a quick example is middle of the summer. I love the beach. I love being outside, get very tan, super bleach white hair. I love being outside, very inflamed, just felt very not myself. I went and got my blood levels checked and I had very, very low vitamin D levels, which as I'm sure, you know, most people know it comes from sunlight. You make it from sunlight. Um, I ended up getting 23 and me done and looking, and I had several mutations um, in the vitamin D pathway. Um, I actually did a post recently on Instagram about that kind of walking through it, but basically I had, I could get it no matter how much sunlight I get, I will not create enough active vitamin D3 in my body for my cells. So what does that mean? I supplement with high dose vitamin D3 year round 
not just in the summer. So that's a quick example that I was doing everything right. I always exercise, lift weights, cardio, eat good, but I still had these very low levels. And vitamin D is probably the most important supplement. One of the most important hormones slash mm-hmm. technically it's a hormone or vitamin people call it. Um, it regulates so many different things in your body. And so that's just a quick example of how knowing your DNA can really mm-hmm. help you better your life long-term. Yeah, it's so interesting. How do you say your average person wants to get their DNA checked to be able to, from a health point of view, mm-hmm. best best function? How do they go about that? Obviously, it's probably a bit different in Australia to America, but is it something that you see people come to do for a performance base or is it generally a reactive thing? Yeah, so I guess I'll separate into two categories. You have the um, clinical grade super, super detailed, um, in-depth sequencing they do, like for the company I work at, or that's super in-depth. It's very expensive, but insurance covers it, but that's focused on like actual disease diagnosis. So if you have cancer, insurance can pay to sequence your cancer cells, your tumor, or you can maybe get insurance to cover sequencing your unborn child if you think there may be something going wrong. Then on the other side, you have things like 23andMe, Ancestry DNA, and they're not clinical grade. So it's not going to be as perfect and foolproof. However, for myself and some friends and family, in my opinion, as long as you're focusing on things like I tend to focus on vitamin pathways and nutrient levels, I would never claim to diagnose somebody with cancer or something or all something severe clinical disease i wouldn't have 23 me data data be a claim all be all for it um, a lot of the times if 23 me says you have some really bad mutation that's a very high risk for a lot of different cancer types they'll put a little asterisk or something and say you should go get this confirmed with a clinical level test does yeah. that make sense it's kind yeah, of yeah. regarding what you said to my knowledge, I don't think they do clinical level testing for the health optimization, performance enhancing side, not yet at least. And as each year goes by, the cost of the sequencing goes down dramatically. So in due time, I think we'll get there, but it's definitely a loaded question depending what your ailments or issues are. But 23andMe can definitely be used for some things, but if you see some crazy thing come up, don't freak out and think your life is over or something because that's more even the clinical grade stuff can have error per errors in it but yeah you get what i'm saying i guess i don't know would yeah. i call it recreational yeah, yeah. sequencing i don't know the real term for yeah, it yeah i guess it's just like health op- like you said health optimization but i wonder if there's so what's it called 23 me obviously that's an american service a lot of my audience is australian but i'll gotcha. have a look gotcha. and see if there is um anything in australia but yeah, I mean, I'll look after this. I'll, I'll shoot a comment on the post once you post it up or something and okay, see what I can cool. find out for that. Absolutely. Well, I mean, we've gone off on a tangent already, but the first thing I usually ask the guest is, what's one thing you're grateful for? I'm grateful for the knowledge that I've amassed through all of this, and I'm grateful for being able to dramatically enhance the quality of people's lives around me. I can't tell you how awesome it feels to... Like just the other day, my friend from high school, um, we kind of reconnected a bit, super, super bad gut issues. Like one of the worst gut issues I've seen, throwing up all the time, this and that. And I give him 
I suggested three, four different supplements for him to try. And literally almost overnight, he's like, this is the best I felt in a decade. Like, thank you so much. And to me, it's just, to me, it seems like, oh, I didn't do that much. I just told him to buy some stuff off Amazon or whatever, or vitamin shop, and it changed his life. But I'm just super, super grateful to be able to give that advice and transform people's lives for the better in that manner. Mm, I love that. That's, that's such a nice thing to be grateful for that you can help Definitely. others and pass that knowledge on. So let's rewind a little bit back through your story. I want to get to know your story, which got to you to where you are today. And then we'll get into some more medicine and sciencey questions. Cause I do have a couple that I'm really excited to talk sure. to you about, but where'd you grow up and what was your upbringing like as a kid? So I grew up on Long Island, New York. Um, I had awesome mom, dad, well still have awesome mom, dad, and I have one younger brother and they, my parents always pushed me to basically do what I was interested in growing up in the summer. I would be either at science camps or basketball camp. We were a big basketball family. Um, I was also really interested in music. I started playing trumpet back in grade school all the way till the end of high school. I taught myself guitar and would kind of make my own little remixes of old hip hop songs. So like way back in the day, like Lil John or Chris Brown, I'd be recording my guitar over that and making little remixes to that. Um, I was also really into drawing and painting, taking some art lessons. So I was super, super fortunate um, to have a supportive environment in my family and also be able to allow me to really explore my passions like that. Not everyone gets to go to these types of summer camps and things, uh, science summer camps to really tinker with things, learn engineering, the basics of biology. Um, so that definitely kind of helped me have a jump start to things. Um, in grade school, high school, um, I was actually kind of a class clown. I'd often mess around a lot of the time. Grades came fairly easy to me. So I'd be joking around a lot of the time. A lot of the professors, or teachers, uh, I'm sure I had them pulling their hair out looking back now, um, <laughs> but um yeah, so then from there, I did my undergrad studies in, I majored in cellular and molecular biology at University of South Florida, down in Tampa, Florida. Um, and there, I wasn't sure I wanted to do. I, all the other kids in my major, in my classes, they were all dead set on being regular, like physician doctors with patients and stuff. Um, didn't interest me too, too much. I honestly didn't really want people yelling at me for doing my job wrong, even though I'm doing it right. I don't know about in Australia, but in the US, doctors get chewed out by angry patients all the time, even though they're doing what they should be doing. Sometimes they may not be, but I was very, very interested in um, my first organic chemistry lesson. We were going over how molecular structures, of, I'm sure you've seen like the, you know, the molecule structure with hexagons. We were going over how changing little structural things on the molecule alters how it binds receptors in your body on your cells and can change your brain function. And I kind of had that aha moment. I looked down at the coffee I had on my desk in lecture and I connected it. I'm like, oh, so the caffeine molecule goes in my body and my bloodstream, binds receptors on my cells, and that's how it wakes me up. So that's what really got me super interested in pharmacology. So how substances affect the body. I was looking into pharmacy school perhaps, but similar to the MD physician route. Um, I heard horror stories about people working at CVS or Walgreens or these different pharmacies. And a professor suggests that I look into pharmacology, a PhD or masters, 
looked into it. I'm like, this is me. I'm sold. And I was fortunate enough to get accepted to PhD programs right from undergrad. Um, usually most people will do a master's. Um, I remember my mom being like, you sure you want to do six more years of school? And I'm like, yeah, if I get in, why not? Looking back now, that was a huge, huge leap of faith. And mm. I kind of understand why people do do the master's first, but it was perfect for me. But looking back, it was kind of a, all right, I'm just going to jump in and see what happens. But I definitely felt super out of place and inexperienced compared to the other people in my PhD class. They pretty much all had either master's or two years of med school, et cetera. Um, but over time, just really sunk my teeth into the science and really applied my creative mindset towards it and was able to have a good, successful PhD experience. And as of the, I've been on doctor for almost a year now, I feel no different, but um, yeah. And here I am trying to spread the mission of personalized medicine. I love that, man. It's been such a cool journey. It sounds like you've been on a very clear path. A lot of people seem quite lost through high school. Did you feel like through high school, you had a pretty clear vision based on going to science camps and having a good understanding that that was your path? Like, did you want to be a doctor when you were going through school? I wouldn't say so much a doctor, but science, I was in the higher level science courses only. Like I, I didn't do the upper level other types of courses like like English or language arts. I knew I love science. So mm. advanced placement biology, advanced placement chemistry. So from high school, I knew for sure I was definitely interested in like cells and science. Uh, the actual profession, I didn't exactly know too much yet. And like I said, even when I was picking my major in undergrad in college, they were asking, do you want to do biomedical sciences to be a, 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 a doctor, go to med school? or cellular molecular biology. And I'm like, I guess I'll go with this. I like cells and stuff. So mm. that's kind of how I chose that route. But definitely something in science was definitely in the cards for me from a fairly early age. Yeah, I love that. I love when somebody has it kind of figured out and knows where they want to go. So let's talk a bit about the study. How difficult was studying for a PhD? I'm sure like you're 28, so you probably did 10 years straight of study from high school. How was that experience for you? So to be honest, the actual studying itself, so it was only around the first year and a half of the PhD that was really actual coursework. So the actual coursework and the studying really, I mean, there were certain classes that were, you know, it wasn't a breeze by any means, but I would definitely say without a doubt, the hardest part about it was after you have the classes, you would go into the lab and you would have to design experiments and prove something no one else has ever proven before. That's a big difference between med school and doing a PhD. Med school, incredibly tough and strenuous in its own ways. Um, so much of a high workload, you have to be studying 12 hours a day all the time, every day. But at least for med school, it's you have to learn X amount of chapters for a test. Meanwhile, the PhD, I have to kind of create something out of nothing. The whole point mm. of it is to be trained on how to think about science, but also in order to graduate, you have to publish a paper doing something that no one else on earth has ever done before. Mm. So it's kind of a different type of difficulty. And the PhD was, the, the, the workload often will come in waves. So there'd be periods where I literally can't think straight. I'm so overloaded with everything. And then there'll be other times where my experiments 
let's say you're doing a mouse study where you give the mice tumors, you got to wait. I don't know. Some of my mice, I waited 20 weeks. So that's like, that's like almost five months for the mice to grow tumors. So it's like in the, in those gaps of time, there may not be that much to do. And my personality type, I always like being challenged and stimulated and doing stuff. So it was almost more stressful for me to not be that busy. I try to like make myself busy with things. I almost do better when there's a lot of stuff I have to do instead of trying to keep myself busy. But it was definitely um, a very uphill, uphill battle, learning these things, getting confidence in myself. Um, You know, because you're doing this experiment, you're, you're pipetting these cells with a tiny amount of drug and, you know, you're doing stuff you can't see and you're not going to know the result for a week. And I can't tell you how many times I wasted a whole week because I did one little thing wrong. And then you repeat that for, I, I would spend six months trying to get an experiment to work, you know, and that's wow. not out of the ordinary at all. So that was, I think what made it very, very tough, but also instilled a lot of resiliency in me towards things, mm. but hardest thing I've done thus far. Um, <laughs> I was also in a lab that had very high standards for things. So um, I think that any job, whatever I do after, like moving forward, I don't think anything will be as constantly demanding and strenuous for my mental health as the PhD. I think that the PhD training, the med school training, all of it is so outdated because we all know that messing up your sleep, sleep deprivation, eating poor food, how it causes diseases, yet you have all these doctors in residency working 18 hour shifts, night shift, day shift, this and that. And you're training these people to be doctors, yet you're not applying things to try and keep them healthy. And it's a lot Mm. of the tribalism of, oh, well, I used to, I had to do this. So now you have to do it. But I'm at the stance that as generations go by, we should want things to be easier. It shouldn't Mm. be like, oh, I suffered. So you have to suffer. We should want everyone else to suffer less over time. Yeah, I love that. That's a really interesting mindset and a great way of thinking about it because so many people do go through like tough times because the generation before them did, whereas it feels like we definitely don't need to anymore. And I love the way that you touched on the idea that there's so many doctors that know what is healthy and what is required from a sleep requirement, from a nutrition requirement yet aren't doing it it's just like do as i say not as i do kind of mindset and we all do it every single person in the mm-hmm. world will offer advice on something that they're not even doing themselves i think it's a important one for people to reflect and realize hmm, what is healthy and what works for me and that obviously is around this optimization for yourself and will tie nicely into this next question asking what is like with cellular and molecular pharmacology which is what you practice or study i guess right now how does that affect our mental health because obviously good humans is a mental health podcast i'd call it underlying Mm -hmm. theme and um yeah i just want to use this as a platform to educate people to yeah improve their mental health and i'm sure you can give us some really great insights into some things as we continue this conversation but yeah let's talk about how cellular and molecular pharmacology affects our mental health yeah so the thing I like to tell people is all that reality is are these electrochemical messages in our brain. Reality is only how we perceive reality through our personal brain chemistry. That's why, for example, let's say me and you right now, we're in a very similar scenario right now talking to each other. And let's say that 
I'm, I feel great. And let's just say for some reason, you were extremely super anxious. We're both experiencing the same reality, but your brain chemistry, something is causing so much of these excitatory neurotransmitters to be dumped in your brain that you're becoming stressed. So the cellular molecular pharmacology, I apply that with mental health towards you can really optimize how your body responds to stress and chronic stress in of itself over time will deplete your body of key neurotransmitters and certain types of supplements can help replenish that and make you more resilient to stress and just mental health as a, as a whole. Um, the first half of my PhD, um, I did study many different cell types in the brain. So neuropharmacology, how drugs affect the brain the brain itself, mood and behavior, also a huge research passion of mine, in addition to inflammation. Um, but I think so many people fight these silent battles and people deal with, um, you know, not being able to sleep um, or just really just their nervous system response to so many things can be so exaggerated and drastic. And the pandemic kind of just threw gasoline on the fire already. I mean, Anxiety is the number one mental health disorder by a pretty large margin. And so many people suffer from it, whether it's chronically or acutely. Um, and that's actually why um, I helped launch ICOM Health. So it's a all natural, 100% natural um, liquid shot that basically a five hour energy, a little bottle, it's one, two sips, it tastes amazing. And you, it has 100% natural ingredients. And within a couple of minutes, it instantly just calms your nervous system. It's biohacking your brain to downplay excitation and increase the inhibition of the excessive neuron brain cell firing in your brain. It slows down brain cell firing. It can reduce inflammation. It can promote antioxidants. So kind of this multifaceted thing that we went for a high dose in one little bottle. So you down that, and we really want that to be used as a tool my, we really want to use as a tool because the prescription of these benzos, whether it's Xanax or Clonopin, so many people are taking these highly addictive drugs. People got to go on an air flight and they pop a Xanax. And it's like, I get it, you're stressed, but there's got to be better solutions if you're a little stressed than taking a Xanax. Don't get me wrong. Some people, based on their genetics, some people do need these prescription medications, but in my opinion, they're grossly grossly overprescribed. So we wanted to provide a natural solution that you could have in your bag, grab and go before a test, before a flight, 100% natural, safe to use prescription medications. In case you want to wean off your Xanax, you can be sipping this throughout the day as you wean off your Xanax and try to get off it. Because again, I think most people, it's the poor lifestyle habits that make them inflamed that then lead to reduced dopamine, reduced serotonin, higher anxiety, higher depression. Mm. That's super interesting the way you touch on the idea that it is far overprescribed. I feel it is quite similar here over in Australia as well when it comes to antidepressants and also any anxiety medication, things like Xanax and whatnot. Why do you think it is so overprescribed being a doctor? Hard to say because I'm not a, you know, prescribing physician doctor, yeah. but I think a lot of it comes down to like, like they say, don't hate the player, hate the game. You can't demonize these doctors yeah. that have been practicing medicine for whether it's two, five, 10, 15, 40 years when they were trained in med school, it was a totally different thing. 
all the things I'm talking about here with the personalized medicine and genetic sequencing, this is all very, very new stuff. I mean, I'd say the last five years, maybe something like that. So you really can't, you can't get mad at them when they have to see patients nonstop every day. They don't have time to read up on all these things and relearn everything. So I think it's, like I said before, the whole training system is so immensely outdated. Um, I know that for uh, med school training in the U.S., I don't know the exact number, but they take a tiny, tiny, super quick course on nutrition. And it's mm. like you would think that a doctor, a physician should know that food like it's a new idea now that food affects your mood. It seems like a no brainer to us now. I'm sure, you know, the people you talk to and stuff, it seems like a no brainer. But if you were to tell a doctor that, you know, five years ago that it does that they're going to not really jump on that, you know, so mm. I think it's. I think a lot of it is just kind of, it has always been prescribed like that. Um, I know that, I know that some doctors can get actually like commission money kickbacks from some of these pharma companies. Um, I don't know the exact details of that, but I'm sure that some doctors are getting um, money or, you know, trips or something like that for kickback for pushing these drugs. But again, I also think a big chunk of it are, they're just not up to date with the literature yeah as well it seems like somebody comes in they've got a 20 minute appointment they say they're really anxious and then you get told oh well maybe focus on this this and this for the next two weeks and then come back to me most patients are gonna be like no i want something to fix it it's kind of this culture that we're built into our like lives is this like quick fix you want to be fixed now it needs to be done now people need to realize that for constant improvement improvement that is going to be consistent and sustained you need to create new habits rather than just try and find these quick fixes i mean that's a that's an awesome point you bring up because i 100 agree it's it's not just the physician doctor side of things it's also the patient themselves trying to do this and you know oh i have high cholesterol i have high blood pressure hey doc just give me a pill to fix it you know what i mean like that's not that's I know statins that are used for blood pressure, they're linked to so many, like, like they're, they're basically starting to now not really use them because they're linked to so many worse outcomes. Obviously, we didn't know that initially when we started using them, but I 100% agree with what you're saying, you know, and it's a lot of it too is I do think that this health and wellness movement, the holistic side of things, I think, I don't know the exact age, bracket but you know i think the people 30 35 and younger i definitely think it's much much more of a movement now to be interested in fixing yourself for the long term but you know people around our parents age that generation you know they grew up in the you know suck it up you'll be fine you know mm -hmm. the, back then you know 20 30 years ago you didn't talk about mental health it was just you know suck it up and deal with it you know what i mean and it's yeah so great point with the um it's also the patient side as well, that it's not a quick fix. Life is short, but also life is very long. And why do you want to be working so hard just to cut that prematurely for something that's preventable? Mm. And, and at the same time, enhancing your life throughout, because it's not just about living long. You want to live long, healthy, and happy and feeling your best. Yeah, absolutely. That brings me really nice into this next question. What's like the most common problem you see when it comes to your field of knowledge when it comes to people's overall health? Um, I would have to say probably it's people 
people get excited about trying to be healthier and they try to do way too much at once. Um, people get on these crazy supplement stacks, crazy vitamin stacks of all these different things, and they may not feel great on it. And they don't, if there's 15 ingredients in this, I call it the mega bougie stack, like some crazy nootropic blend or this or that, you don't really know what's making you feel good or making you feel bad. Or on top of that, um, you can actually stress out your liver from taking too much of good supplements. I remember kind of my story when I first started really diving more into the nootropic cognitive enhancement side of things, probably midway, first third, midway through my PhD, um, I was taking so many different, it's all natural, healthy stuff, green tea extract, acetyl-L-carnitine, all these things from vitamin shop that are good for you. But I remember getting bags under my eyes all the time and I got a physical and my liver enzymes were super elevated. So I was actually, even healthy things you take, they're also metabolized by your liver. And if you're taking all these different healthy things, you could be stressing out your liver. So that's another side of it that people can get burnt out by these things. But I would have to say, um, definitely trying to change too, too many things at once. Um, and I'd probably have to say, I think just inflammation in general, I think virtually everyone's inflamed nowadays, whether it's, you know, clinical level, like multiple sclerosis, but there's, our world is just so much more polluted with toxins, pesticides, things in the air, the, what we put on our food that we eat, like the, like the pesticides, it'll make it so the plants are less nutritious. So even though you're eating that clean green diet, it's gonna have way less nutrients than it did five, 10 years ago. Um, so just limiting the inflammation in general, I think people don't try to address the inflammation root cause itself. I know one thing I always tell people to do when I'm working with someone, one of the first things I say is, next time you feel tired or off, Go ahead and take take some Motrin. Take, take it. Take an anti-inflammatory. Take some ibuprofen or Motrin or Advil or whatever, and see how you feel. If you feel better after taking that, you don't need a PhD to figure out. I feel like shit. I take an anti-inflammatory. I feel better. You don't need a PhD to figure out. That means you were inflamed, which is what made you feel like shit. You get mm -hmm. what I'm saying with that? Yeah, I do. That's interesting. What do you recommend for people to reduce inflammation, whether it be supplementation or some other activity hydration sleep what's your record what's your best recommendation for sleep sleep is definitely uh sleep's definitely huge um one of the first things i recommend to people is getting a full-blown food allergen sensitivity panel getting done um i again just me feeling like crap kind of led me down a rabbit hole and i would doing everything perfect and just feel this weird this weird like eye sensation and I would sleep nine hours, wake up, eat a good breakfast, work out, have some caffeine, not a lot. And I would just be tired like midday. Um, I ended up going to an immunologist and got a blood panel. A, uh, they kind of like prick you with different little environmental and food allergens and see what you react to. And I found out I was severely allergic to peas and almonds and I ate them every single day. Every day I would have a mixed veg of peas with whatever food I made. Um, and I love the almonds, but the thing is with me was most people think allergies, your throat swells up or your skin gets itchy or you get a rash. My allergies cause inflammation in my brain. So what does that mean? That's what makes me feel very tired, very lethargic, very just foggy and out of it. 
So once I eliminated those foods, I instantly felt so much better. So I always tell people, you might be eating foods you're allergic to every day, a couple times a week. You may be exposing yourself to that. So I think definitely food sensitivity, get a full allergy panel done. Um, even if you got to buck up a little bit of money, get a full pack. I think mine had like several dozen different things to check environmental and stuff. And, um, I actually found out I'm also very allergic to mice and I work with mice for over half a decade. So think about me going to lab. I would a be eating the peas and almonds for lunch some days. And then I'd also most days be going down to this big mouse facility so no wonder why I felt so tired and out of it all the time. I'm ingesting these allergens to me and then I'm inhaling air. Sure, it's ventilated and filtered, but they're not getting all the little particles and allergens from the mice. I'm picking up mice, all these things. Um, so yeah, definitely the allergy type stuff um, and gut health. I know everyone, it's you know getting beaten like a dead horse. Everyone, everyone says gut health, but it really, really is true. The inflammation that happens in your body it has to get into your body somehow. And the most common route it gets in is through the leaky gut. So are you familiar with leaky gut? Kind of. I understand kind of the gut biome, how important it is, kind of connects to everything. And that's where we yeah, absorb, obviously, a lot of our nutrients and inflammation and whatnot. Yeah. So basically, you have this cell layer in your intestine is one cell layer thick because your cells need to absorb nutrients into your actual bloodstream into your body. And if you have food, highly processed food um, or gluten, I'm super passionate. Gluten messes me up so bad. I don't have celiacs, but I'm super passionate that human beings were, did not evolve to eat gluten. We do not have the enzyme that fully digests gluten. So what does that mean? You can have partially digested gluten molecules that are way bigger than they should be and they'll literally tear a hole in your gut lining. And that'll let undigested food, bacteria, viruses, it'll let all these things directly into your bloodstream that shouldn't normally be there. And that is where the inflammation starts. Um, so like I avoid gluten as much as I can. When I do have it, I have a digestive support enzyme that'll help me digest it. But um, yeah, so the leaky gut, it could also happen due to stress working out too hard even, but the leaky gut itself. So breaching that intestinal barrier, that I think is the vast, vast majority of the time for people, that is the gateway where these inflammatory particles get into your body. And then depending on your genetics, and it's super complex, but depending on your genetics, let's say you have gluten, your body may have an autoimmune reaction in your stomach, in your intestines. And that's what we call celiac disease. Or in my case, I never get bloated from gluten. My genetics make my autoimmune reaction happen in my brain. So similarly to what I mentioned with the peas and almonds, I have gluten. I feel that same weird, it's almost like an itchy eye feeling. I just feel kind of weird and cloudy. And that's how I know that I'm inflamed. So yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. It's, it's fascinating. I've never had a um, checkup for allergies or whatnot for my health. I'm going to book one in you've inspired me i think it's um important for everyone because even if you don't feel bad let's say at a very layman's turn i think people can yeah pick up little things that might give them those little bits of improvement that can really free up a lot of anxiety and inflammation in their life so i'm definitely going to go check that out and i'm going to try and cut a bit of gluten out of my diet because I yeah really, and i think i think um, you just mentioned you just mentioned something important that i try to tell people that 
people say, oh, I feel fine. I feel good. Like it, gluten doesn't bother me or I don't need X, Y, Z supplement, whatever. And what I tell people is, what if I told you a day of you feeling fine, you feel pretty good. What if I told you that was only like a six out of 10, you know, like you, like I'm very prone to inflammation. So things that make me inflamed, I feel horrible, but some people, you know, they get away with it. It doesn't really affect their life that much, but what if your life, what if your life could be so much better? What if you could even have more energy and be happier for longer? You kind of get what I'm saying there? Yeah, like yeah. you may think you're fine, but you may actually, most likely, virtually everyone I think lives with some level of inflammation. Unless you're actively eating super good, really taking care of your body, our world is sadly so toxic nowadays. I mean, even the, the things we touch, I know like receipt paper, for example, is covered in... BPA, which is proven to disrupt hormone levels. So I never touch receipt paper that, that that's been linked directly to absorb through your skin and can affect testosterone levels. That's just one of the plenty of examples that our world, the cards are stacked against us. That's why I think everyone needs to supplement for different types of things. Mm, that was my next question. Supplementation in the field of work you're in, Oh, well, not even the field of work you're in as your like profession, what do you recommend for supplements? Obviously it is a very blanket term and it depends mm -hmm. completely on the individual, but what are some of the most common ones that are lacking in our diet based on the culture we're living in nowadays? Sure. So the, the top three um, I say are a proper B vitamin complex. So B vitamin and folate complex Um this mutation called the MTHFR gene mutation. Um, it's involved in a process called methylation. So basically you take, let's say you take B12 vitamin. Everyone's heard of that. Before the vitamin B12 can do its thing, it has to be methylated or activated by this enzyme. And this is a big cycle, a lot of different enzymes, but um, these types of mutations are very, very common in people. Um, most friends and family, when I take a look at their 23andMe or something, most of them have this mutation. I have it. Um, and taking a form that is pre-activated, so pre-methylated cost me 12 bucks on Amazon for like four or five months worth. And that alone, I've seen that make absolute night and day changes with people, um, people that have suffered from anxiety, they have that mutation. So they can't activate the B vitamin. So they can't make enough dopamine and serotonin. So that's the root cause of why they're anxious or distressed. So definitely a B complex preferably a methylated or pre-activated one. Um, vitamin D3 um, just regulates so many different things. And you, if, you're, if you're not in the sun, at least for me in Connecticut, except for three, two, three months out of the year, I'm, I'm going to be deficient no matter what. You need mm. to be in actual sunlight. So yeah. I think most people are deficient in that. And in my opinion, I think that the reason why, at least in the United States, why we got hit so hard with COVID-19 was that so many of us are deficient in vitamin D. And um, another thing too is the darker your skin, the less vitamin D you create from sunlight. So that's why I think that's one of the reasons too, there was a lot of inequalities in the COVID rates between different ethnicities. It regulates so many different things. And then the third one I think is magnesium. I think like 40% of people plus are deficient in it. Um, it's really prominent in leafy greens, but as I told you, pesticides we put on our leafy greens make them be less nutritious. 
um, magnesium deficiencies, giving people magnesium has been proven to help with depression and anxiety because it helps calms things down. It slows down your brain firing. So pre-activated, pre-methylated, B, B vitamin, folate complex, um, vitamin D3 and magnesium. Those are definitely my top three. And then from there, it really depends on, again, your genetics or what really your yeah. goals are. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I was going to say if magnesium didn't come up because obviously Nicole spoke about that last week, the importance of it for, for getting to sleep. But Definitely. yeah, like you said, so many people are deficient. And it, it was really interesting the way you touched on the vitamin D3 and kind of the whole coronavirus thing. Like it's crazy mm -hmm. that we were getting told by governments and stuff to lock ourselves inside and not be yeah. outside in the sun. And once again, back-to-back -back weeks of speaking about the importance of vitamin D and how as humans, we're literally becoming more and more inside creatures based on that's where work is more often. So I think, yeah, it's important to realize that hopefully you can pick up as much vitamin D, but it's just important. I think it's just an important one for people to realize how important getting outside is. I mean, sunlight is far more than just vitamin D, you know, that's, the, that's, yeah. that's one of the benefits, but it's far more than just that. And then also, like I mentioned earlier, you don't know if you never gotten sequence or don't know your genetics or don't get blood work done routinely, you may be like me and you may be getting sunlight, but your genetics may not let you have enough active vitamin D3 in your blood. So you may think you're doing everything right, but you may feel like crap because your body can't produce enough of it. Mm. I'm going to dumb this down real quickly just for a question because I mean, sure. not calling any of the listeners dumb, but for me, I'm just like, where would I go to? I know it's obviously different. So I'm going to try and work out more so the um, profession I'd go to. Like, do you recommend going to like your average GP to get blood work done? Or would you, as in to, to check out your, um, your allergies and whatnot to get mm -hmm. say like blood work done to have an idea of what's going on with your DNA. Cause I'm trying to like work out what 23 and me would be for over here. Um, yeah. Or would it be like going to a naturopath or yeah. What profession would you recommend? going? Yeah, so to I would definitely think, done? I would definitely think naturopaths, you know, are definitely trained in more of these things. Um, I'm not exactly sure with like, I know me, I moved, I moved up to Stanford, what, like around a year ago. And I, um, like been looking for a GP and I met a naturopath at a networking event. And she actually told me, Oh, I'm not allowed to be your GP by law. So you still have to go find a GP and then have a naturopath on top of that, which to me kind of doesn't really make, that just goes to show how, at least in the United States, how a naturopath isn't really viewed as a real, real doctor yet why can't mm. i choose to have this naturopathic doctor be my main doctor uh, regarding the allergy stuff i would definitely try to go to a rheumatologist or an immunologist like an allergy okay. specialist sure. um i would i would suggest going to an actual specialist i know they have like everly well has an at-home food sensitivity test i don't really have any data showing that it's good or bad but i always think it's better to go to an actual expert and go ahead and get that done um, regarding the sequencing. Yeah. I'll get back to you to see if there's any at home yeah. type kits like that. Um, but I would think maybe genetic counselors could also be a good place to start. Even if 
even if you're asking them, hey, this is what I'm interested in learning about my genetics, where could I go? Since they're yeah. kind of focused on the genetic side, it may, it may not actually be going through them for the sequencing, but their job is to take your genetic results and explain them to you. But again, okay. like I mentioned earlier, I don't know how many genetic consultants are usually trained on, at least in the United States, on, you know, you have a 50% chance your kid is going to have a genetic defect. They're not mm. so focused and trained on, oh, you have this mutation and how you process dopamine. So you should take green tea extract to, yeah. to remedy. Like, you know, they're not really, and again, you can't hate the player. You yeah. got to hate the game. That's just where science moves fast, yet it also moves incredibly slow. Yeah. So I, what I kind of took from that would be like, start maybe with like an immunologist and get your blood work done and then take that to a naturopath to get them to sort yeah. of have a bit of a look at it and then recommend some good supplements from it. Yeah. I think definitely consulting a naturopath would be great as well. Yeah. And maybe, maybe even talking to one before you get the blood work done, because okay. like, I'm not sure vitamin D is even on the routine blood work. Okay. And I always think that B12 level folate levels um, there's a lot of other stuff that's a little more niche. They don't always, they don't offer it for the basic, you know, base level okay. of things. So talking to a naturopath about what your symptoms may be, yep. and they can kind of help guide you go ask your GP for X, Y, Z on your blood test. And definitely Perfect. I would try to be consulting them as well. Cause they're going to have that more, you know, it's in their name, holistic more of that approach. natural holistic side of things first. Yeah. So I think that's the best because I, I guarantee there's going to be people listening to this podcast that are like, hmm, I want to try and implement some of the stuff I've learned right now. What's the next step? So I guess the yeah. next step would be try and find a naturopath in your area, have a chat with them, how you're feeling, what's going on physically, mentally, emotionally based on maybe yeah, how you're feeling. Then go and get a blood work, blood test done at your GP, and then you can go and relay the results back with your naturopath and try and work out some solutions for problems or even just optimization for things that aren't necessarily problems. Like we said before, you might be operating at 60% and you don't even know. No, that's a good point though. Now, now that you're, I do need to do a little more groundwork and figuring out like what literally is the next yeah. step to like do. Cause like me, the scientist, a lot of times my head can be in the clouds where like, I know what's perfect and optimal, you know, but how yeah. does a regular person actually, you know, Except, make it I can suggest things, but I'm also not. I, yeah. So that, that raises a good point. Cause I, I'm definitely curious too. I know this, a lot of this, so I don't necessarily need to go seek out a professional to tell me it. So it's a different perspective. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's a good point. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I'm just trying to like as well relate it for America compared to Australia, because obviously our healthcare systems are very different and quite unique. So yeah, I think that's just a good little takeaway for people. I mean, a few easy takeaways are like try to get those B vitamin um, that we spoke about earlier, magnesium, D3, and then, yeah, try and check in with a naturopath, get some blood work done, and then, yeah, optimize that side of things. There's a few other things I want to talk to you about briefly. And first one is, well, not the first one, We you kind of touched on that. You wanted to touch on this, and this is something that I – I'm very interested in. And that's the idea on different drugs that have been associated with partying and abuse that are actually providing amazing therapeutic results for legit diseases that plague humanity. Do you want to go into some of the different drugs from obviously mushroom psilocybin, the different types of therapy with drugs that do have this, uh, I guess, connotation to it. Yeah. Being stigma negative. To yeah. The stigma attached yeah. to them. So, I mean, 
for instance, I used to live down in Byron Bay. I mean, I shouldn't, I shouldn't even have to say Byron Bay, but I live with a guy who owns a mushroom tincture brand. That's all like lion's mane, reishi, um, blah, blah, blah. And we had magic mushrooms growing in our backyard. And we had like a day where he like took us through a, just a light trip and had some stuff in a really controlled environment all sat around and just connected in the nature. And it was like such a surreal experience for me. And the way that I describe, the way that I kind of view this stuff is, it's a way to like strip back from your ego and just kind of like mm-hmm. view your life from this, like we've got all these limiting self-beliefs that from my experience, and I've seen other people speak about this as well. It's just a way to pull yourself out of the ego and real and sort of look from the outside at these beliefs that we have about ourselves. What from the science is happening in this realm? Because I know you were curious to talk about it with me. Yeah. So yeah, whether it's the classical psychedelics, meaning psilocybin, so magic mushrooms, LSD, DMT, mescaline, and then there's also the empathogens, so like the MDMA, or I hate the word Molly, like that's what it does yeah. the street name for, but nowadays that's very, Molly could be a whole amalgam of different research chemicals, so I just like the chemical name itself, or the dissociative uh such as ketamine and you know some people consider that a psychedelic you know tomato tomato depending who you talk to but virtually all these things i know in the u.s we had the dare program i forgot even what it stands for it's basically to convince kids not to do drugs back in elementary school and everything and you know yeah of course it makes sense growing up you're not going to be that's where it was back then but virtually all these molecules these substances are achieving breakthrough designation by the FDA. So that means that it's a huge titanic step forward for these mental health treatments. And there's, most of them are Canadian companies, um, but so many different companies are popping up that are either utilizing psilocybin itself, or they make a slightly modified version of it. Um, But in my opinion, they're going to completely revolutionize not only mental health, but I'll rewind a bit. So how, at least for um, psilocybin, LSD, DMT, ketamine, how these things work is they elevate something in your brain called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And um, that's essentially like gasoline for your brain cells. And chronic stress will lower BDNF. And that means your brain won't be as plastic or able to learn new things or evolve throughout time. Like let's say you never shot a basketball before, and then you start learning how to shoot a basketball over time. That muscle memory is literally the circuitry in your brain being strengthened over time. You're literally remodeling your brain and that's mediated through BDNF. And they've done studies, I think it came out, what, two, three years ago now, they take brain cells, they put either just like water or LSD um, psilocybin DMT on these brain cells and you see the, like the outline of them they literally grow like ridiculous it literally grows these drugs they literally are medicines they literally grow new brain cells and they repair damaged brain cells so this is a simplification but let's say you have the happy circuitry in your brain so what makes you happy you could have a traumatic event that can cause that pathway to not be used as much. And with the brain, a lot of it is either you use it or you lose it. So over time, you're in a rut, a little depression for a while, your brain almost forgets 
how to think positively because that circuitry has kind of atrophied and worn away over time. And that's how these substances can really help promote that. They can reconnect that damaged circuitry over time and they reroute something that's called the default mode network. So how you have a sense of self and your sense of environment and your place in the world. And I like to look at it as, you know, like the Grand Canyon or these big caverns, it's from erosion from water and rivers, you know, over thousands and thousands of years that are slowly eroding away. And that's kind of how I view, you know, depression or anxiety. You're digging into these negative mindset circuitry in your brain. And sometimes all it takes is, like you said, you ingest these substances, you're separated from your ego. Sometimes all people need is they're used to thinking one way their whole life or, you know, for extended periods of time during about a depression, you take this substance, they start thinking a totally different way. And then they're like, holy crap, like my reality really is my perception of that. And it's this elevation of BDNF and the growth of these new brain cells. That is what is responsible for a lot of the beneficial effects. And you have ketamine has been approved since the 1970s as an anesthetic. Um, You know, let's say you shatter your legs in a car accident, the IV with ketamine. Um, you know, that got a really bad rap, um, but it's actually able to use, let's say you have a stroke and your brain cells are dying, they'll IV you with ketamine. Hospitals are allowed to do that because it's that protective for your brain cells. It's literally, actually literally protects them from damage. Now, MDMA, you know, the rave scene and everything, you know, it, it, when you're you know, you can fry yourself doing those things. And yeah, you, you just, I, just touched on like protecting your brain by taking a, a ketamine. Exactly. Obviously there's some bad, because like, right now you, if from the outside listening in, it's all happiness and rainbows and taking these drugs is good for yeah. you because they're making your brain. What's bad about them? <laughs> no. Yeah. So definitely it's, again, a lot of it depends on your genetics. And I know that there's actually some psychedelic therapy companies, they're starting to use genetic testing. So before you do psychotherapy, meaning before you get, you know, an infusion of ketamine, or they'll give you LSD or you're before they give you the substance to expand your brain, and you'll be around trained professionals around you. It's not like, hey, buddy, let's go trip balls in the woods. Like, no, this is like, you know, like, very legit, highly regulated clinical settings, they can sequence you to see if you have mutations that make you hyper responsive or not a good responder. So they could give you the right dose. That being said, um, definitely, especially with the classical psychedelics, shrooms, acid, DMT, like depending on the person, you know, you really should be around people you're comfortable with doing these things. And, you know, bad trips can happen. Um, And I believe that bad trips are simply these substances, they make you think a certain way about a certain topic. So let's say, for example, you take some, you're tripping, you start thinking about a past event and you're like, wow, I was actually a real big asshole to Sally, let's say, you know, I I wasn't a very nice person to her. And then you can go down that rabbit hole sometimes of reflecting on all these bad things that you've done. And depending how you respond, you can either say, wow, I was kind of a piece of shit. I should do better as a person. Good trip. Or you could say, 
you know, plug your ears. No, 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 no. This is all fake. This is a hallucination. You know, this is all bullshit. Mm. I don't want to trip anymore. How do I make it stop? And the second you try to tell yourself, when does it stop? That's usually when people go downhill. So I think these bad trips, most of the time, the bad trips can lead to the best outcomes, depending on the person. But that being said, I'm also a huge, huge advocate for getting a test kit to test any drugs that you're going to ingest. Everyone's heard stories about people overheating and dying at these music festivals from taking drugs. And a lot of the time, I don't think it would really be MDMA doing that. Yes, it can raise your body temperature, but there's a lot of other research chemicals that can really jack up your body temperature even more at a much lower dose. And, you know, these test kits can be, I, I love dancesafe.com or dancesafe.org. Um, you got to be testing what you're doing. I'm not sure in, the, in, in Australia, I, I'm not sure how it is, but I know at least in Canada and some other countries, they'll have stations at music festivals. Well, they'll test your drugs for you. And mm. I think that's just smart because it might, people are going to be doing drugs there regardless. It's not like someone isn't going to go there and think, hey, they'll test my drugs. Now I'm going to do drugs. All in my opinion is going to do is reduce people taking, you know, contaminated things they may not think they're going to get. I mean, how is it, how is the whole landscape with these substances in Australia? Yeah, very similar it's kind of obviously extremely frowned upon and illegal in the party scene but there have been times where they've tested it at music festivals but i think like you just said it is this mindset for one consumers think they're going to be trapped by police which mm-hmm. just kind of obviously comes with it but like you said i also don't believe it would increase use because someone's like oh sweet now i can get it tested i'm going to do drugs yeah it's less people are going to do that than people will test their drugs and realize it's bad and not take it. So like you said, it's like, you're not going to stop people from doing drugs. It's something that's just human curiosity and human nature to want to experiment with things. But I think like you were going on before in different scenarios and say music, music festivals and using drugs as a party kind of thing. I love the idea and I'm super interested to learn more about like what magic mushrooms do to the brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, like I said, they all, they all elevate similar molecules. It's, of course it's complex. It's not totally yeah. understood yet what we're in the process of, but we do know that pretty much all of these substances elevate BDNF in your brain, which call which grows new brain cells. And it's also, I think that I'm trying to think how to word this. So you have the after effect. So the afterglow where you have higher BDNF, your brain cells are, I guess, more, more fueled and rejuvenated. You can feel better, but you also have the altered consciousness in the moment, if that makes sense. Mm. And now it's, you know, if you're doing something, you'll have a different thought process. If you're on shrooms versus LSD, you know, kind of depends. And I do think too, that the, the thoughts that you're having in the moment can help you come to these epiphanies that'll then be reinforced. So I'm trying to think how to word this things you're thinking about while you're under the influence of these things. And again, this is in a more clinical therapeutic setting. That doesn't mean that taking some mushrooms at a music festival can't help your, you know, help your well-being long-term, but I definitely want to make it clear. I think the focus now should be on people ask me all the time, like, what do you think about recreational this and that and everything? And I'm like, I think it should be up to you to 
do what you want with your body as long as you don't hurt or affect anybody else. However, in order to get to there where all these drugs are totally legal to be done, able to be done by anybody, we need to really vet the pure therapeutic clinical side of things to really um, make sure we know what they can interact with. We can make sure what type of people um, should be taking them, shouldn't be taking them and what they could actually be helpful for. But I'll tell you right now, psilocybin, especially magic mushrooms, there's clinical trials going on for obesity, for anorexia, for bulimia. Um, there's clinical trials, a company actually, Mike Tyson is a spokesman for it. They're going to be using magic mushrooms to help repair traumatic brain injuries from athletes. So um, CTE um, is super prominent in NFL players and boxers, MMA fighters, and they're not destined, but such higher risk for these neurodegenerative diseases. And that being said, also, I forgot to mention, even for Alzheimer's or dementia, if you think about it, if a disease does its thing by eating away at your brain and letting it does like basically melt away, don't you think taking something that grows the brain would help treat it? You know, so it's, again, a lot of this stuff, it hasn't fully, the clinical trials aren't fully done mm. yet, but based on the data thus far, and based on just knowing how these mechanisms work, I definitely think it's going to be a huge shift in how we view these therapies. Because uh, like, for example, antidepressants, the, the normal ones we have now, the SSRIs, they're, they don't have any statistically significant beneficial effect versus placebo, meaning they don't really work much better for most people than taking, you know, just a sugar pill. And that's, mm. again, kind of going towards the personalized genetic side of things. So let's say you go to the doctor, say you're depressed. They give you an SSRI, which will raise your serotonin levels. But what if you had a mutation in your dopamine pathway? What would that mean? That would mean your serotonin levels are fine. Your dopamine levels are low. So you're depressed, but you go on those medications. Now your serotonin is going to be jacked up even more when it's already normal. And you're not going to be a You're going to have doubly high serotonin, which can also be a bad thing. And you're still going to have low dopamine. So I like to tell people there's different flavors of diseases or a good example is depression because you could have depression that stems from a mutation in serotonin pathways or that stems from dopamine pathways or depression that stems. Remember BDNF I mentioned before yeah, yeah. with the psychedelics. Um, you can have mutations. I actually have a mutation that makes me have genetically low levels of BDNF. Um, that makes it so I usually in the past, I suffered from really bad anxiety, especially during the beginnings of my PhD. Um, and that also explains why me personally, I've responded so well to some of these medicines because I'm genetically low in this. So mm -hmm. yeah, so example, you could have genetically low serotonin, genetically low BDNF, genetically low dopamine. So take those three people. The serotonin, I would say, maybe try 5-HTP or an SSRI wouldn't be the worst. That may be what you need. I always think yeah. try natural first, but if you have low BDNF, maybe try some of these plant medicines or what else raises BDNF? Magnesium. Believe it or not, mm. magnesium is basically the same thing as ketamine. It does the same thing in your brain, just much less intensely. Magnesium helps you sleep. Ketamine's a tranquilizer. So it's mm. much, they've actually done studies 
if you take, if you give a mouse magnesium and ketamine, it'll have more antidepressive effects and it will raise BDNF higher than taking either one separate. Mm. CBD also raises BDNF. So there's a lot of other, it's not just about, ooh, I have low BDNF, let me go trip on mushrooms. You know, like that's up to each person to decide, but there's a lot of other things that can raise the BDNF. Or if you have low dopamine, you could take a different supplement. So you kind of get what I'm saying here is that all three of these people would present, say, I'm depressed, but mm. there's different sources of the depression. So it doesn't make sense to me why doctors aren't at least checking the levels or looking, you know, it seemed like a no brainer to look to see, oh, your dopamine's low. You don't need an SSRI. Mm. Yeah. It's so interesting that, especially how you touched on the idea that with any depression, depression and any anxiety medication, the placebo effect, I've read some stuff about studies in that too. I don't get how that works, how pharmaceutical companies can be selling something that have been shown that they get beaten by the placebo just as often. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it's really crazy. It's really weird. I know there was recently a, I forgot the name. There was recently an Alzheimer's drug, a monoclonal antibody. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I can't off the top of my head, but it was recently approved for Alzheimer's. And there was a huge uproar by the scientific community because basically the, the data just, the data just didn't match. Like it's not a great medicine for Alzheimer's, at least according to, that's not even me saying it. Like yeah. a lot of these top, top, literally Stanford, whatever, Harvard, whatever neuroscience professors are writing letters that, you know, this doesn't really make sense to push this. So it's really hard to say what goes on with all of that. And it's, I definitely think big pharma drops the ball on a lot of things, but a lot of people try to come up to me and say, yeah, I agree with you. Fuck big pharma. We should get rid of them. And then I got to be like, Hey guys, yeah. listen, they're overall a net benefit to society. If they didn't exist, I would scrape my knee and I would die of an infection. So it's exactly. like, you know, it's, are there dark, sinister, foul sides to them that are money hungry and don't care about our health? Without a doubt, in my mind, definitely. But that doesn't mean that they're all bad players. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean they don't do anything good for society. But to your question, it's hard for me to say. You know, I'm sure that there's yeah. some, you go up the ladder, there's probably some weird conflicts of interest or mm. something like that up there. But yeah. right. your guess is don't want to get any conspiracy debate. The last thing that I want to quickly touch on um, yeah. the idea, because from the way that we've spoken about this BDNF and whatnot when it comes to psilocybin why wouldn't somebody just be on mushrooms at all times obviously it changes consciousness because that's why i wanted to quickly touch on the idea of microdosing mushrooms i've got some friends who just microdose every day is that just giving them that little bit more creative that brain growth every single day but not to a point where they lose the consciousness of reality yeah so it's and again, it also depends on the root cause for these things. But yeah, I mean, essentially you're like, people will say sometimes, you know, I don't want to be on a pill the rest of my life. But what I say is like, you're already taking so many of these other prescription medications. Like how is a supplement or a plant or a fungus? How is that any different? I don't care what I need to take every day to feel my best. You know what I mean? And Regarding the microdosing side of things, I do know it's best to not do it every day because you yeah. build a tolerance quickly. I think 0 0.1, 0 0.15 grams every, I think like two to four days or something like that. Um, but 
it's definitely kind of literally micro dosing and pulsing that BDNF. Right. Yeah, and it, Brian. it also depends too on like, do they actually have low, I'm trying to think how to word this. Do they have genetically low BDNF or maybe their other lifestyle factors aren't totally dialed in? Meaning, trying to think how to word this. Some people that feel better microdosing, like, trying to think how to word this. Um, some people that feel better microdosing, yes, they're boosting up the BDNF, but maybe if they slept more or ate better or managed their stress better, that would also increase the BDNF, mm. if that makes sense. And that's not yeah. to say that people that microdose lifelong are doing anything wrong or anything. Like there's still no studies on that or anything, but personally, I'd much rather be doing that than taking an SSRI, you know, it just depends on the person, but with the microdosing side of things. Um, yeah, I definitely think that that's going to be um, a way forward for things. And now real quick, I'll leave you with this. So low BDNF is also a major cause of uh, ADHD or lot lack of focus and Adderall tanks your BDNF levels. Um, that's one of the things that jacks up. And when people come off Adderall, their BDNF is so low, they're so anxious and out of it. But um, so like, I'm trying to get a word of this. So if, you, so if you're taking the Adderall, they've actually done studies where they'll give these mice ketamine or psilocybin that'll have the same cognitive benefits. And also, um, I think mind medicine is actually might be an Australian company. It might be long story short, my medicine is a company. They're actually doing clinical trials for microdosing LSD for ADHD. So mm. I personally think, I think in the next couple of years, once the trial comes out, if you can't focus, the doc is going to say, you want Adderall or do you want a microdose LSD, which has similar effects to the mushrooms? You know, they're different, but they mm. elevate similar things, bind similar receptors. So like microdosing could be addressing the root cause of why you can't focus. And it's yeah. not even, it's not even so much, ooh, the, it makes me so much more creative. It's not about the creativity. It may just allow you to have more passion and focus towards things because you're yeah. restoring that. And again, this is way more than just BDNF. I just know me, my story, yeah, yeah. with my mutation and my journey. I could tell when, when my BNF is low and I'm stressed, I'm just like, ugh, I feel like life's moving like a rope. I can't grab onto it. It's moving too fast today. Where did the time go? And mm. when my BDNF is high, uh, when I'm on point with all my stress, supplementation, X, Y, Z, or after an experience, um, I just feel I have such an intense I'm excited for life. Whatever yeah. life has to offer, the good things and the bad things, I'm just ready to take it on and ready to make the best of it. And obviously, you know, that afterglow, you know, it wanes over time. But, you know, learning how to, learning to know what that feels like and learning to train your mind to hang on to that because, you know, people shouldn't be tripping balls every week on mushrooms. You know, microdosing yeah. is one thing, but even microdosing, I think people should, you know, you do that for a couple of months, and then you stop for a month or two and see how yeah. you feel because your brain may be so trained in being positive. You grew those new connections. Now you're trained to be happier. You may come off and realize I don't really need it. Or you may come off for two months and be like, all right, now I'm going to start doing it once a week now. You know what mm. I mean? So, yeah, it's super interesting. And it's funny, the stigma that comes with things that have been societally outlawed. It's funny, mm -hmm. like people, 
won't take a mushroom, but will happily take a pill that's got 50 different chemical ingredients that you've got no idea about, but because it comes from a, you know what I mean? From a source that's trusted compared to something that's come out of the ground. Like I just, it baffles me all the different stuff with certain drugs, but conversation for another time. <laughs> yeah, man. But far out, dude, this has been incredible having a chat, getting to learn more about your story. I feel like we've just kind of, dug straight in it's been such a beautiful yeah, how, conversation. how long have we been going on with this it's yeah I we've think, been going a while yeah probably just over an hour yeah close to an hour and 20 minutes so we're super grateful to have this chat the last question i do leave every single person on good humans podcast with is what does being a good human mean to dr tyler panza hmm to me i think a good human would be someone that strives for personal growth to discover yourself, to uncover what you can contribute to humanity. I think no matter how, no matter how insignificant you think your contribution to humanity may be, it's still something. Mm. Everyone can't be an Elon Musk. Every, you know, everyone can't completely titanically momentously shift uh, just the human species as a whole. But I think that everyone can contribute something to society no matter how small. And on top of that, just carry yourself and being kind to others. You know, mm. if people do you wrong, then yeah, fuck them. But like, just be kind to people. Yeah, I love that. Beautifully answered. Well, thanks, Ace man. I will leave your socials. I'll leave your ICOM health shot social stuff in the notes too. I'll do a bit of a recap in the show notes with, I guess, a few of the supplements that we should take and then maybe some directions around the um, naturopath direction that people, mm -hmm. I I mean, I'm sure you recommend, but something that I'm going to make sure I go and do in the next month is try and see a naturopath and try and do a bit of a blood test and yeah, biohack my health to be the best it can be. And I'm sure so many people out there are grateful for this conversation and will really spark a bit of curiosity, which is what this podcast is all about. So yeah, thanks guys for jumping on Good Humans Podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really, really grateful for having me on and grateful to share this with a larger audience and, you know, my first real Australia centric audience. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been a great time, man. Thanks for having me. Cheers, mate. This has been a Wellbeing Network podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 